Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. I remember pulling into Asheville during the hurricane. We finally get it, it's pitch black. I'm trying to back this 30 foot Airstream in. My wife's freaking out. My kids are starving and freaking out. My wife won't even look at me. So you never considered just hitchhiking and abandoning your family? What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim, I'm Evan. We got a great one for you here today with Keena Pickett, a professional skier turned entrepreneur, longtime partner with Matador Network. He's been all over the country in an Airstream trailer since COVID hit with his family. And we are going to get into all kinds of stuff about life on the road. But first, our infamous hot takes section. Evan, are you ready? I was born ready for hot takes, Tim. Okay. Well, both of mine are in regards to flying today because I know we've been both doing a fair amount of that lately. So here's the first one. When you're sitting in the aisle seat on the plane and the plane is boarding, have you ever noticed that the person who is going to be in your row and is going to make you get up to let them in, you can pick them out from far away because they stare at you the entire time while they get close? I always think when I'm sitting in a row with like one or two people in it and there's one empty seat and they're boarding the final people on the plane, you're one of those last like 15, 20 people on the plane and everyone is staring at you thinking the same exact thing. I hope they're not in my row. I hope they're not in my row. And you know that. You know if you're that guy who's late, you're walking down, you're like, oh my God, like everyone on this plane wants it to not be them, wants wants the, the road to themselves. They don't want me to sit with them. And then that fateful moment when they do look at you and you have to get up, there's this like this unspoken tension between you, I think always that you're always like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, fine, all right, bud. And it sucks because, like, they didn't do anything wrong. They just showed up, like, maybe 10 minutes after you did. Right. It's funny because it's like if you're that person in the aisle seat and this person is looking at you making the contact, like, you know he's going to make you get up and your heart is dropping and you're like, damn it, I don't have this whole road to myself. But everybody else around you is stoked. It's like when you're in school and the teacher calls on you for the one question that you don't know the answer to and everybody else is like, thank God they didn't call on me. And you're like, God damn it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a funny phenomenon and it's it happened to me actually on my trip to back from Germany. I was in the row by myself and I was waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting and I was like watching the last few people and I was like doing all these mental gymnastics in my head like oh that, that, that's a family of 3. That means they're all probably sitting together. That means there's only one seat I have available so they're not going to sit with me. They're going to they're going to be in a three row. Okay. Like oh that's a couple. Like they're going to need two seats at least. Not going to be with me. Uh like I was doing all these things just just so that I could have one more inch of leg room and not have to have the like feeling of being cramped next to another person, even though it really doesn't make much of a difference whether someone's sitting next to you. You don't get that much more room. But yeah, no, and I felt, and I simultaneously think that and feel bad for the people that are walking down because I'm like, you know what? They're the ugly, smelly kid in elementary school. There's very few open seats on the on the uh, on the bus. And this kid gets on the bus and no one wants him to sit with them. They're Forrest Gump. That's that. who they are. They're Forrest Gump. <laughs> and he knows it and you know it. Everyone else knows it. And no one wants to talk about it. All right. Well, uh, now that we've come to the Forrest Gump conclusion there with that one, the next question I have is similar, but it's a little bit later on in the flight. So if you're sitting in a row on the plane, it doesn't matter if you're in the aisle seat this time. You can be in any seat. 
But if you're in the row, there are two other people in the row, and the other two people in the row start a little conversation. But you're not involved in that conversation. Does that make you feel self-conscious? Like, are you the loser? Or is this just happenstance that you're not part of the conversation? <laughs> this is kind of like a... I don't know. It's like a weird catch 22 because I don't, I don't want to really talk to people on a plane. I really just don't like, I want to sit there. I want to mind my own business. I want to watch my movie and I don't want to make small talk, but yeah. Yeah. If, if the other two people are talking and they are total strangers, they just met, they, they're now getting to know each other and they're really hitting it off. I'm sitting there like, fuck, what's wrong with me? Like, why are they talking yeah. to me? Like, why are, and of course it's, I didn't make any efforts. So I'm, I don't look open. So of course they're not talking to me. And if I wanted to interject, I probably could. It would be, we'd probably all be, you know, having a gay old time for the next six hours. But the fact is, I'm not. So it's my fault. But yeah, I'm like, you know, again, it goes back to like elementary school. It's like, well, why is everyone in this group project uh, buddy, buddy and hitting it off and having these like personal conversations? And then I'm just sitting here doing my doing my work head down. No one's talking to me. Like, what's what's wrong with me? Yeah, it's funny because it just happened to me when I was flying home from Michigan uh, and you know, they started talking and I'm immediately self-conscious like, okay, well they're not talking to me. And then like you go down the rabbit hole and all of a sudden I'm recalling all of the moments throughout my life where I've been socially awkward. And I just, <laughs> I'm like, everybody on this plane is talking and they're all friends and I don't have anybody to talk to. And I haven't even put my headphones on yet. Like what is happening in my life now? And they're all friends. It's funny how those things spiral, you know, how like one little thing that has nothing to do with you, how these two people hit it off, you know, they, they, they're making small talk. You probably really don't want anything to do with the conversation anyway. It's probably not interesting, but that triggers you in your mind all of the moments in your whole life where you were left out of something. And then you start thinking like, what if they're talking about me? What if they're wondering why I'm not being more social? What if everyone on this plane is actually talking and getting along and having a great time and I'm the only one who isn't? Like, are they looking at me? Everyone's looking at me. They are looking at me, aren't they? It's like this whole, this mental <laughs> morass that you plunge into. It's the only time in your life when you actually want to be a part of the conversation about the weather outside the plane, <laughs> right? Like, there's no other time when you're like, God, why don't you ask me about the weather? I want to share my thoughts on this muggy day in Chicago. Yeah, I, I think it just speaks to people like people wanting to have their cake and eat it too. You know, we don't want to be drawn into small talk that we, that doesn't interest us and that puts pressure on us to be social. But then when we're excluded from it, we're, we're, we're pissed and we think it reflects on us somehow. So it, it, it I think it reflects people's desire to always be included. And as someone who has a chronic FOMO, that speaks to me very deeply. Okay. Well, that's what I got on my side, Evan. You're up. All right. My first hot take question for you, Tim, is am I too old to use furniture in my house that I find off the sidewalk? I don't think so because I just put out a piece of furniture in front of my house the other day and it was gone in like two hours. And I live in a neighborhood where there are some families, but there's not like any college kids. It's all people that have that own their home and probably buy their own furniture normally but they all like oh that's a pretty nice freaking coffee table right there and my wife does it all the time like half of our furniture is stuff she found on the side of the street so like i don't think you're too old at all oh yes love to hear that that's the best news i've heard all day perfect because i'm moving apartments the end of this week and i am now thinking like okay like i gotta go online i gotta get like this is my first apartment that i've had by myself really like not with roommates i don't want it to be 
you know, just like a shit show frat house, like my previous apartments have been. So I'm like, you know, I, I should get like, you know, I kind of want like nicer furniture. I want to get, you know, more upscale stuff that looks like a, like a respectable house, you know, respectable place to live. And now looking at the prices of everything to like buy really nice furniture, I'm just like, this is ridiculous. The way I furnished all my previous apartments, I drive around with my friends. I'd find fur like couches and chairs and whatever that were sitting on the side of the road. We'd load them into a truck and that would be my couch. And then people would always come over. They'd be like, oh, this is a really nice leather couch. Like, oh, how much did this cost you? And I'd be like, oh, it was free. And they're like, oh, how did you get it for free? It's like, ah, found it on the side of the road. And they'd just shoot up from the couch like, like there was a possum living in it or something. And they'd be like, oh, my God, you got this on the side of the street? It's like, I, hey, you just said you liked it. It's clean. It's fine. What's It's comfortable. What's your problem? There's the stigma attached to it. But do I care? Eh, not really. Well, here's the thing. So the one thing you don't want to do is go to Ikea and buy the cheapest coffee table and the cheapest couch. Because I did that when I had my first apartment by myself where I didn't have any roommates and I wasn't living with a girlfriend. I went to Ikea. I bought a coffee table for like $25 and I bought a couch. Okay, and I thought it was pretty nice. Like, I have no idea what I'm talking about or doing, but I thought it was nice. And years later, like, I'm I've been dating my wife now for a while, and she still talks about my couch all the time and how terrible my couch was and why did you buy the worst table at the at the thing. And I was like, the whole time I had that stuff in my apartment, I was like, I'm really classy now. Like, I am stepping it up. I went to the store and I bought something and I put it in my house and it's nice. But no. So make sure if you're going to go to the store, don't don't go by yourself. Bring somebody with you that can actually be like, no, don't get that. That's terrible. This is good advice, Tim. And also, I mean, the thing about street furniture is that it has a certain character to it, right? People who shop at Walmart, they all have the same thing. They all have the same like kind of flimsy, but like serviceable furniture. You get stuff on the street. That stuff has a history. That stuff has like a story. We had this one chair at my old apartment that... It started out great. It was like this really nice fabric, very soft, really comfortable. You could fall asleep in it just by sitting in it for 10 minutes. And over time, it started to lean in one direction. Like you couldn't lean back without it just leaning really far to the left. So we started to call it Eileen. And it became, it had its own personality. Our chair had a, was, a, was a member of the household called Eileen. And it started to lean more and more and more and more until one day someone was sitting in it and the back just fell off. And the kid fell out of it. It was hilarious. It was great. So that was the end of Eileen. We had to get another we got another uh, street couch or a street chair, actually. But you don't get that kind of a story with a uh, and that kind of a personality in a Walmart or like a Wayfair or an Ikea uh, piece. You know, don't you? Think? No, you don't. And the, and the good thing about taking something in off the street is if you end up don't, not wanting it, you don't feel bad about putting it back or donating it to the thrift store, right? The like, return policy is great. You get it from the street. Right. You, you can return. The return, return policy is unlimited days for free. Just fucking put it right back out there. It's done. I mean, Eileen, unfortunately, we had to take her out behind the shed and put her out of her misery. But she was a good chair while she lasted. And I don't, I don't, I don't regret the Eileen years at all. Anyway, all right, good advice, Tim. Now, now I know now I have a few things to think about as I prepare for this move. Uh, my next question is, if you had your own brand of alcohol, what would it be? What flavor would you like infuse it with to make it uniquely your own? Well, it would probably be a lager beer. And I think the unique flavor would be 
Flannel shirts. Potentially, yeah, a little bit of flannel. Uh, melted snow. Yeah, snow. Well, they already there's already melted snow in beer, just uh, vicariously. But I think if there was going to be a unique flavor specific to me, it would probably have to be like P-Tex or something. What the hell like that. is that? P-Tex is, uh, it's like a wax, um, a mold that you put on the bottom of your skis ah, or snowboard to patch okay. up a that hole. That sounds delicious. It's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I thought Tex Lager, baby. I thought you were gonna say like Tex Mex or something. What's the food you like? You like noodles? You like like Thai noodles? I thought you were gonna say like a Thai flavored beer. I, you know, I could have gone that route, but I chose not to because I felt like that would have been uh, that would have been not true to to me. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Well, now I mean, now I feel unoriginal. My answer would have been like pizza flavored beer. Which how do they not have that? Like that's mind blowing that they don't have a pizza flavored beer. Most popular food in the world fucking infuse beer with it no brainer well evan you've got your next business idea to go along with uh left right left or whatever your restaurant is called (laughs) speaking of the pizza thing i was having this conversation with a friend the other day which side of the fence do you fall on pizza rolls or bagel bites pizza rolls 100 percent, baby. really yeah i love pizza rolls why is that what is the what's the hype on pizza rolls when i was a kid i ate pizza rolls constantly and i like bagel bites too but pizza rolls are easier to get crispy in the oven so pizza rolls are crispy and delicious it's more like an actual pizza yeah but now you're an adult you're not a kid anymore you're an adult you can make adult decisions and you know the correct decisions so my idea is why is uh pizza rolls are impossible to cook correctly to cook not that they're freezing in the center or burning your fucking mouth off you can't get the right temperature it's just impossible it's one or the other and by the time even if you do get a good temperature by the time you've eaten like the first like five or six the last half of them are cold so i just don't think it's possible to like cook them to the right temperature whereas pizza bagels i would argue are much more true to pizza's natural form because they come they're open faced they come on a like a bagel also one of the best foods ever invented so why not just smash that together with pizza make a superfood it mimics the experience of eating a pizza more accurately and it's much easier to to cook in a way that isn't too hot or too cold like goldilocks said famously it's just right yeah but the thing is if you want pizza just get a pizza pizza rolls are awesome because they go great with dipping sauces Ah, i don't know tim we're talking yeah of course you get a pizza obviously i'm not arguing pizza actual real pizza versus pizza bagels but you got it's, it's we're we're in we're in a cage match here. It's Totino's, it's pizza rolls versus bagel bites. Like that's that is it. a long going debate, and I still will always pick pizza rolls because they're crispier, and you just okay. gotta let them sit after you take them out of the oven for a couple of minutes. That solves the mouth pounding heat issue. Okay, all right. Well, I can spend years trying to change a wrong man's mind, and I got I got pizza bagels to eat, so got no time for that. Well. I think that'll wrap us up for Hot Takes here. We're going to get into it with Kina. We will see you on the other side. Kina Pickett is an entrepreneur and former pro skier who spent the better part of the COVID era traveling with his family in an Airstream trailer, documenting the experience via video and social. And today, he's here to talk to us on No Blackout Dates about family travel, skiing, running a business on the road, and uh, generally living the life that's optimized for travel. Kina, welcome to No Blackout Dates. It's awesome to have you. Hey, thanks, guys. Psyched to be here. Right on, man. So let's start at the top. But 
we know you at Matador as the guy who lived in an Airstream with his family during COVID. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your COVID year in the Airstream. What inspired you to do this and how it all came together? Sounds good. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Like, I've always been pretty outdoorsy guy, you know, pro skier, grew up in Vermont, moved to Jackson, did that, ended up in Montana. And so, you know, when COVID hit, um, I had already actually bought a 1971 off-grid Airstream. And our first trip, we were like, here we go. We're going to go down to the desert. And it was literally like right when COVID hit. So we, you know, me, my wife, my two kids and our dog, we took off and went down to the Southern Canyonlands and we were like hanging out down there. And you didn't really know what was going on. I didn't, we didn't know how bad COVID, we, no one had any idea. It was just at the beginning. And I remember being off grid for like two weeks and then coming up to Moab to supply up. And it was literally like the end of the world. I mean, I went into the grocery store and was like, oh my God, what is going on? There was like no food left. There was like announcements, like only one water, only one avocado. I was like, we got to get out of here. And so we ended up like spending one more night there. And then they actually kicked everybody out of the county. And so we just bolted and went home and kind of hunkered down for a minute to try to really understand what was what what this virus was all about. And once we understood more about it and and like how it how it, you know, kind of moves through populations, we, we were like, hey, we're going to be outside. Um, and, and now I'm working from home. So why not? Let's just try to put this thing together and do it full time. So that was really like the impetus, that first trip with the, with the old 1971 Airstream coming home and then realizing what the pandemic actually was and then making a plan, putting a plan in place and saying, okay, Hey, this is, couldn't be a better time to go and do this. What does a digital nomad in COVID times look like? It's a bunch of people tackling each other to the ground over one single avocado. I love it over one avocado i i literally remember going to check out i think this is a true story i think i had three avocados and the woman literally took two of them out of my hand and was like sorry only one and i was like wow that's amazing it's so crazy like i had when this all started and i remember the first time i went to the grocery store in my small town in colorado i i started taking photos of the empty shelves and being like this is going to be the craziest thing to talk about in like six months when it's over and here we are like 19 months later i still have this photo gallery going of the covid era on my phone it's ridiculous it's pretty wild so yeah. kind of on that note i mean that what are the big things that that you've done that's drawn attention over the last year or two at least uh on social etc is that you've basically proven any lines of it being impossible to travel with your family and particularly with young kids uh as being bullshit. So what have been your biggest takeaways in traveling in an RV with your family and in making it all work? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think I would say that the hardest part by far is managing the expectations of your children. Like if you're single, this is a whole different program. It's super easy. With kids, it's really difficult. Um, I think the biggest things, like I'll go through a list of, and then at the end, I'll tell you kind of what I learned because we've learned some pretty amazing things. So the hard parts are like, you, you really have no schedule. You're kind of, it's not like, oh, we're going to put the kids to bed here and then we're going to do, no. You can just throw the schedule right out the window because you have these long travel days and then sometimes you get in at like 8 or 10 o'clock and the kids are freaking out and they're tired. And and then, you know, the other biggest thing is like they're, they do get to hang out with people when we're on the road, but it's like sometimes we're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no other kids around, right? 
So that's the other part. So it's like one is like the long travel days are really hard. There are no schedules. When you're educating them, you have to be creative with how you're doing that. Um, and then the third thing is like, you know, socializing, right? And so what we learned um, very quickly was long travel days are really difficult. So what we ended up doing was we would say, okay, I, I hate screens. That was the whole point of doing this. But what we realized was if we gave them each an iPad, and they could, you know, watch shows or do, or do something like that. That allowed us to drive like 10 hours a day if we had to. So what we did is we instituted like one hour on, an hour and a half off. Um, and that's kind of how we, we did it. And if they wanted their iPad back, they had to do something creative in the meantime. So we give them their iPad for an hour, they watch shows, and then they have to draw or do puzzle games or something like that. That allowed us to really get through these like eight to 10 hour days. The other thing is like, scheduling right there, there's really no schedule um, around education and around like sleep time because you know you could get in it really late at night um, to a campsite or something like that so what we tried to do was we tried to focus on what we called unschooling and really try to focus on the environment that we were in yes the kids were in the books my wife did the majority of that but then when we would get to like the desert southwest for example like we'd go hunt for raptor tracks or go look at petroglyphs or stuff like that and we'd really talk about that and talk about like where we are and what's the flora and fauna look like and what are the what are all these rocks and you know how old these are you know all the way to the east coast and the mountains of the east coast and the oceans of the east coast and so that really enabled us to like i feel like that kind of education for the children it was really beneficial because they're never going to forget that you know in the books is in the books and that's how that is and sometimes it gets a little mundane but this was like exciting and it's like inspirational and and they'll, it's something they'll take along with them yeah that's interesting because as as traumatic as it might be to be removed from your friends and from your traditional school during covid and having to adjust to all these these new restrictions and being out on the road um in this kind of unfamiliar place it's like born out of that is this uh, chance to kind of connect to the natural world and to grow up almost even though it's just a, for a year in this harrowing period but you guys kind of carved out your own little bubble and made it educational and made it uh, a way for them to grow and not just flounder and wait for things to reopen yeah you know i think like you know i talked i have a lot of friends that live in manhattan a lot of friends that live in la and you know i would be out in the middle of nowhere and i would you know touch base with friends and i'm like how you doing they're like dude i'm going through hell i got two kids and i'm in an 800 square foot apartment in manhattan you know, and like we skipped all of that. We saw more than we would ever see, you know, and I think the whole point of this experiment was like, can we keep the kids close to the land? Can we get off the screens? Can we use nature to fight all of these other things that I don't believe in, that I don't think are good for children, you know? Um, and it's pretty interesting, you know, as the kids started to get aligned with <laughs> with us and like being like oh this is cool i think we were like literally in the middle of florida coming across the middle of florida from coast to coast and my son turned around and he said hey dad you know when i talk about home now i, I mean the airstream that's home for me you know and it was like one of those moments where i was like holy shit that's pretty cool like he gets it and that's that's the beauty of doing this is like home can still be something it's not, it's not a structure anymore. It's where we're, where, where we're at as a family. Right. If there's ever any measure of success in a van life world, you hear your son saying, yep, this is my home now. 
this is it. Yeah. That's yeah, the sign it, of success. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think like, you know, if you look at like, you know, my kids are, are uh, five and eight. Right. And so once you start to understand their personalities a little bit more, and this is also like, I mean, I think, I feel like a lot of people before the pandemic were so work focused, um, where they kind of lost connection to their kids and their spouses a little bit. And I think that one thing, good positive thing that's happened out of this, there's been a reset of like priorities, which is huge. And there's no routine because most people and most children live inside of a routine and every day is the same more or less. So for you, it's like this excitement of every day you're going to a new place. You're never one week, never starts the same as the previous week did. That's the cool part about it. Were there behind the scenes moments of panic and breakdown though? Because I mean, watching oh, you guys on social, God, yeah. you know, everybody was stoked, you know, you're, you're like in the lake, the feet are in the water. Everybody's got a smile on their face, but I'm certain that that was not a hundred percent. Just a continuous unbroken smile for 365 days. Not never, never yeah, one frown. Negative, negative dude. So I I'll have to, it's funny. I should probably like get something up there and just have like the, the freak out moments. Cause there's, there's a lot of them, you know, it's not all like roses and ice cream, dude. It's like, I remember, I remember pulling into Asheville, um, during the hurricane. So the hurricane had just come through. We were pulling up in the mountains of Asheville and it was pouring rain and it was probably 10 o'clock at night. I could not find the campground anywhere. I had no idea where we were going. We finally get in. It's pitch black. I'm trying to back this 30 foot Airstream in. My wife's freaking out. My kids are starving and freaking out. And I took this video of like the inside of the camper because we were still in the 1971 at that time. And there was like bikes everywhere and just shit all over the place. My kids are both bawling. My wife won't even look at me, you know? So it's like, yeah, dude, it's, there's, there's moments where that are really hard, you know? Um, but I think what you end up realizing is that those things are just, you get, you kind of get used to those pain points. And then the beautiful thing that ends up happening is like, maybe you'll pull in. I remember we were in Sedona, outside of Sedona, boondocking way up in this Canyon. And we pulled in late at night and I like wedged this thing at the top of the Canyon and then you wake up at sunrise and no one has seen where we are. And then the whole back of the airstream is all windows and like everyone's piled into one bed. And, you know, I can see my kids starting to stir. And then I just grab the windows and open it up. And you're like looking out over this desert landscape. That's like, it'll, it just takes your breath away, you know? And it's like, those are the moments that repair those psycho crazy moments that happen because they're always going to happen. But the, the, the beauty and the, the, the kind of, energy restoring power of natural landscape always like heals that quickly. So you never considered just hitchhiking and abandoning your family? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there was definitely times where the kids were like, there was probably multiple times when the kids were like, we want to go home. We're done. Yeah. I was going to say like on an average road trip when I was younger for like a three to six hour trip, I'd say I want to go home at least like 10 times. <laughs> and and these, <laughs> exactly. kids, these kids are gone for a whole year. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. That. I mean, there was like, I remember literally on the way to Florida, I think my son was like, dad, I'm, I'm kind of done. I really want to go home. And I said, bud, give me like two days. Give me two days. Cause where we're going, it's, it's, you're going to, you're going to be stoked. Like I knew that they would flip out like on the white sand beaches and we got there and he didn't want to leave. We were there for like two and a half, three weeks. And he was like crying when we left. So, you know, it's all, it's also one of those things where you're like, Hey, we're like 2,500 miles away from home. It's not like, you want to go home? Okay. It's going to be six days. 
Yeah, right. Or we could go to this beach down here that's going to be like four hours from now. And they're like, okay, okay, fine. A lot of pressure to pick the right destinations, though. It's like, oh, give me two days and you'll you'll love it. Trust me. You go there two days later. Yeah. He's like, ah, not feel it. Still want to go home. You're like, fuck. Now I gotta travel another eight days to get to the next coolest place. And yeah, gotta, exactly. You know, you Still gotta... want to go home. You're like, did you plan out how 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 far in advance would you plan out your destinations, or would you kind of just do a spur of the moment, decide where to go, a more spontaneous? So it was kind of both, right? So uh, we were on a schedule because we were we were doing a lot of like tourism stuff um, with states, right? So North Carolina, uh, South Dakota, Florida, uh, Idaho, you know, New Mexico, a lot of, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, a lot of states came on. So there was like a routine and a schedule when we would be on those shoots, but then we would have like four or five days of driving where that was kind of on us um, to get to an, the next location. But you know, we, there's like those roadside markets and like, oh my God, what the hell's up there? We got to find, we have three days of travel. We got to find campgrounds. And dude, we found some gems. I mean, just places that you we would never have found. Like, believe it or not, and I'm just going to say this, Wisconsin, fucking love it. Yeah. Okay. Like, and people are like, Wisconsin? Like, what the hell? Dude, we stayed at this place called Devil's Lake and we hit it three times because we went across country three times. Now it's a staple. So when we head across country, we always hit Devil's Lake and we found it by accident. And it's like literally one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It's so cool. So once you're out there, that's it's kind of easy, it seems, to achieve that peace of mind. But in terms of getting out there in the first place, this is my question is, I mean, is it really feasible for most people with regular jobs to travel the country in a van? Because you see it all the time on in movies and on Instagram. But I mean, the reality is, People have rent and mortgages to pay and time off to take. And it seems as though the people that could maintain a primary residence and their job and van life are relatively few. Yeah. So, you know, I think, is it for everybody? No, it's not. Um, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is like, what is your job? What are you doing? You know, and I think what the pandemic has done, I mean, if you just look at the market, this market in general, I mean, you know, RVs have never seen sales like this ever, ever, never. Right. So what it's done is it's, it's, it's given people the opportunity to do this because they can't go to the office. Right. So that was the big kicker uh, with this one was like, well, there's a pandemic. We, we can't go to the office, you know? So is that going to change? Yeah. I think it'll, well, I think we'll slowly get back to normal, but I think before that, it's like, what am I doing? Can I even do this? Does my job allow for this? I'm an entrepreneur. I work for myself. I always have, you know? And so for me, it, it was it was a lot easier than it would be for someone that had a nine to five. But because of the pandemic and because of the work from home, you know, scenario that we're in now, it's going to be a lot easier for people. Um, you know, I, I was I had a lot of flexibility around this because part of my job um, and I was kind of splitting was to create content on the road. Right. So for someone that's got a full nine to five job. Let's put it this way. If someone has a full nine to five job and they're working from home, can they do this? Yes, they can. Yeah, they, they absolutely can. They would have to be a little bit more structured with their time um, and make sure that connectivity is a huge part of it. So, you know, going back to it is like, can I do this? Yes, I can do this. Okay, how do I do this? Well, you got to pick a vehicle that's right for you. You know, do I have kids? Yes, I do. Do I have a dog? Yes, I do. Okay, well, I'm going to want something that's a little bit bigger. Oh my God, how the hell can I tow this thing? Trust me, it's not that hard. You know, once you figure out the hookups and figure out how to tow, it's not that hard. 
The critical things for working become space. Do I have space to do that there? And what does my connectivity look like? Am I going to be off-grid? Do I need a, you know, some type of satellite connection? Um, or I'm going to be on-grid and I can use like a router inside to create a hotspot in the camper. And then setting up your work hours so you can work in blocks. You know, I work in the morning for three hours, I go hang out with my family for a bit, and then I come back and I work three hours in the afternoon. Um, and then making sure that you're able to kind of keep that cadence going um, is really important. You know, I, I think literally that the pandemic gave us this opportunity to do this. And I think like if it had been a normal world, it would have been a little bit harder. And I think everyone now, that's why this is becoming so popular, because I think there's a lot of people, quite frankly, that aren't going to go back to the office ever again. So then this lifestyle looks a little bit more doable and it is doable, you know? And I think what I would say to people is like, if you really want to do this, then put your foot down and go do it. Um, and, and, and do the research to figure out how your setup works for you and your family or you and your spouse or you as a single person, because they're all going to be different. Well, speaking of the entrepreneurial work that you've done on the road and creating content, you partnered also with the Oak and Eden whiskey brand which is infused with maple syrup. Yeah. I'm a big whiskey guy. Are you a big Dude. whiskey guy? Apart, forget the Oak, Oak and Eden thing. <laughs> Before that, big whiskey, big whiskey guy? I love Oak and Eden. Yeah, always been a big whiskey guy. You know, growing up in Vermont, uh, my brother is still back there. And like, like a, my, some of my favorite times are, are being able to uh, hang out. He's coming out here in like two weeks. And we just disappear into the woods, literally. Like we we just disappear in the woods with a good bottle of whiskey. We fish. We do whatever, and we just spend time together. And like to me, it's like some of my favorite moments of my life have been, you know, with my brother or like really close friends out in nature uh, with a really good bottle of whiskey. You know, and so I've always been like loved, loved, loved whiskey always. And so right before we left to go on this trip. I was at dinner with a really good friend of mine here um, who's an incredible photographer. And we all went to dinner at this woman cooked up this great meal at our friend's house. And the founders from Oak and Eden were there and the marketing director. And they were like, who, who are you? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm this guy. And like, I'm, I'm about to, and we were doing a tasting. It was like a tasting paired with this dinner. And I was like, yeah, I'm leaving in like two days to go out on this crazy adventure. And they just were like, oh my God we want to get involved. And I was like, Oh, that's just such a great idea. And it worked really well. And it's like, it's one of those things too, where you're like, I got kids. I don't want to promote a whiskey brand, but it's like everything that I have tried to do with this has been very lifestyle centric. Like I don't give a shit about that because I drink whiskey and I'm not scared to say that I drink whiskey and my kids know I drink whiskey and I'm not a drunk, but I like to sip on bourbon. Right? So it's like, I tried to surround myself with people that, kind of we all had the same goal and mission and felt the same about life um but oak and eden's awesome and you should try that the maple syrup one and the reason i put maple syrup in is it because because i put maple syrup in everything i'm from vermont i mean tim we're gonna have to bleep out this entire part of the interview this is scandalous uh, uh, alcohol talk dude, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty it's pretty funny so my mom always calls to check in how are you doing and the first thing she says how are you doing on maple syrup? <laughs> like not, not how are the kids? How's your wife? How are you doing on maple syrup? Oh, I'm getting a little low. Okay. I'll send another gallon. I get it by the gallon and I put it in everything. Yeah. Also, well, as far as whiskey goes, are, do you mainly stick to the, the kind of rustic local craft stuff or would you ever indulge with a uh, Jack and Coke? 
You know, I mean, the Jack and Coke era was like the pro skier thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it was like the, yeah. you know, that, I mean, literally, like, I think, I think half of the people that I knew that were pro at that point, I think we like, I think we survived on Jack and Cokes, like until the Red Bull vodka thing, Red Bull vodka thing. The only thing less that. classy than a Jack and Coke, the Red Bull vodka. Yeah. But, it, but all that did was create like a, like very, very, very energetic drunks, which yeah. was never... <laughs> That's never really anything you, you want to like, you know, put your hat on, but especially when skiers are generally pretty energetic people as it is. So you get a couple of Red Bulls in them. It's oof. Yeah. Then it's like, it, it's, it's, it's it, either you're up all night and everyone's just like wrestling and, you know, fired up. And it's like, typically you drink, you know, 20 Jack and Cokes and you're ready for bed at like three in the morning, but you get on the Red Bull vodka thing. It's like kind of a whole nother program. So I, as as a skier and as a content creator, you've basically been on the road your entire adult life. I'm curious if there's burnout creeping in anywhere, or or if you're still fired up to go for years to come. Uh, let me put it this way: if you just did this all the time, year after year, yeah, you're gonna burn out. That's why, like, the house is always you know we would never get rid of our house ever. You know, it's just home base is is very important. But what it ends up doing is it ends up striking this thing in them where maybe they're, they're in school for four months, then I guarantee they're going to come back because it's already started. And they're like, hey, we want to go to the ocean. You know, we're kind of, we're, we're a little over school right now. I don't really like it. Can we go to the ocean? You know, so it just, them knowing that that lifestyle is there and those places are there, I don't think they're, I don't think if you do it the right way, I don't think you're ever going to have a burnout. I think you're going to have a, you know, because the kids are in school now, there's really to do this with the family. You either got to go all in and yank them out of school or you do it when the age is appropriate. Um, and that's kind of what we decided was like the age was pretty appropriate. Now, as our kids start to grow up and go to middle school and high school, it's going to get a lot harder to do that. But what we have instilled in them is this advent sense of adventure that'll, that'll never go away. And we'll be able to continue doing these short strikes or, you know, maybe we take a week off here and there and go to the Oregon coast or go up to Canada or do whatever that is always going to continue for sure. Right. And you know, now they've got that bug in them so they could come back when they're a little, you know, maybe they're older, they're college age, they're in their twenties or something. And they're taking you out on a road trip to see all the shit that they found. You totally. know? So they've got that bug now, you know? Totally. I mean, I think it's like, that's what we tried to do was like, I, and I've said this so many times and it's kind of funny cause it's popped up in a lot of places now, but like, the, the thing that's the most important about this is like giving your kids something that that can't be taken away. Like you can give them a toy, it's going to break. You can give them a motorcycle, it'll break. The one thing that you can give your children that no one can take away is experiences because that is what shapes them and that is how they tell stories going forward, right? And I can hear my son doing it right now and he's eight. He's seven. He's seven. He'll be eight in November. He says to his friend, hey, you know what, man? Do this one time. We were on this beach. Or, hey, you know, this one time, me and my dad went way up to the top of this mountain. It was crazy. Hey, this one time. He's already doing it. He'll never forget that, right? And that, that's what's going to form him, and that's a gift that you cannot take away from them. Right. Well, that's a great, great way to close that out. We do have one last section that we do, and it's the listener question. And uh, I, I think the person that submitted this question must know a little bit something about your background before they submitted this. But... The question that we selected from listeners this week is, <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna, I'm laughing as I read this, being a Colorado guy, but where is there actual powder to ski in Vermont? Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, let's see. 
Vermont makes good skiers because it, it's usually like you can see a reflection in the snow a lot. <laughs> um, it's also like growing up, I mean, God, you know, I mean, I grew up skiing everywhere in Vermont. My favorite places to ski in Vermont are definitely Stowe. Um, and there, I actually have found some good stuff up there. You know what I mean? Like north facing shots that you can even get above tree line there, which is kind of unique for the East coast, you know, but I, you know, for me, that's where I would go. If I was like going back to go ski and hunting for powder after a good cycle, I would go to Stowe and I would ski some north facing shots up high somewhere. Tim, what are your thoughts on uh, Colorado versus Vermont skiing? I, 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 I could tell you, uh, you have something to say there. Actually, the only place I've ever snowboarded in Vermont is Stowe. And I, I, I have to admit that it was it was legit. It's a cool mountain. It was a cool resort. Um, good riders there. Um, but I mean, I'm I don't know. I'm a I'm a selfish bastard, I guess, after growing up in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but dude, think about think about it. This too is pretty crazy. right? I mean, Burton, that's like the founding. I mean, that, that's right. I remember right. back in the day I used to have like an outback and we used to just go up in fields. We'd like go hike the thing up in the fields and just like ripped down in our Sorel boots. Totally. Um, totally. And it's funny that's where it all started, but you know, I think people got wiser, you know, and that was me. I said, Whoa, wait a Jackson hole. What's going on over there? I gotta probably go check that place out. Hey, I have a question, Kina. I, I don't know if you've both skied and snowboarded or just, uh, just skied, but I've never done either. I've tried to snowboard once of uh, like two year last year in Killington, Vermont failed miserably at it kind of discouraged from getting back out there what what's your tip for someone like me trying to get into either skiing or snowboarding i'm open to either one whichever one's easier to learn what's what's your tip for me to maybe this winter to get back out there and learn one of the two um i would say um hmm you know i taught it's funny i taught both my kids and my wife all how to ski at the same time which was definitely don't was not recommended that was like a fucking train wreck it was like a train wreck coming down the mountain yeah um yeah. teaching people how to ski is not yeah a thing to do. yeah it was really interesting i i would say like um just go slow man do baby steps you know i feel like um and it's also like skiing versus snowboarding it you really want to like feel what feels most natural to you you know if you're a right. skateboarder a surfer snowboarding is definitely going to feel more natural i've had that happen to people that i know that like grew up you know you know grew up skateboarding and and surfing and then they went to skiing and skiing is just it doesn't make any sense to them like they got my feet are separate what the hell is going on so it's a stance issue so i would like focus on if i was to choose which one i would choose which one i felt more comfortable with like if i've been a skateboarder or a surfer i would definitely lean towards snowboarding more than skiing just because it's going to be a totally foreign thing stance is different your feet are locked together um, and then just go slow, just go slow and figure it out. My kids just got home. I don't know if you hear them in the background. All right. Well, we'll let you take off to go, uh, go check in on the kids, but thanks for joining us. Kino. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Dude. Awesome guys. This has been really fun. Cool. Well, uh, we will be in touch and, uh, take care. Have a good weekend. Okay. You guys too. All right, well, here we are in news of the day after a great talk with Kina. Thanks again to Kina Pickett for coming on the show today. Be sure to head to Instagram, follow Beyond Land Road Trip. That's where you can catch up with everything him and his family are doing on the road. 
alongside Matador Network there uh, at, at our site. You can find some of his videos as well. So, news. Evan, I know you're not a beer guy, but how would you feel about meeting in Chicago for St. Patrick's Day in 2023 at the brand new Guinness Brewery that's opening in town? Uh, not good, Tim. Not good. Well, uh, you might have to change your mind because Guinness is opening a Chicago taproom and brew pub in Chicago's Fulton Market neighborhood in a former railroad depot. Pretty cool because you think of Guinness, it's this iconic Irish beer, the iconic Irish drink, I would say, uh, other than whiskey. And there's always been this legend that I found true when I was in Ireland that the closer you are to Dublin, the better the Guinness is. Now we're going to be able to put that to the test here in the States. Yeah, I mean, I, I got some news for you since we're in news of the day. I don't care how iconic the beer is. I'm still not going to like it. Talk to me when they, uh, when Chicago's Fulton Market neighborhood or whatever opens up a White Claw distillery or a, a Jack Daniels branch or something. Well, that might not be too far off. And I, I've got to say, though, like before going to Ireland, I didn't really like Guinness very much. I never really drank it. Maybe I'd have one on St. Patrick's Day every year, but I was never a Guinness guy. But after going to Ireland, I love Guinness now. Also, so according to your theory that the closer you are to Ireland, the better the Guinness tastes, Chicago is quite far from Ireland, Tim. Not sure if you're aware, but yes. it's not close. It's not close. They're, so They're making the beer, though, though. That's so would it make it's... more sense to go to Boston, also a classic Irish town, have a Guinness there? Technically, it's closer to Ireland. Better Guinness in Boston than in Chicago, right? Yes, but the point of that is that the beer is traveling across the ocean, so that's why it's not as good when you're not in Dublin. Uh, but they're making it themselves in Chicago, and that's why it's almost like being in Dublin. It's little Dublin. Here's a question for you, mask guy. Uh, is Boston or Chicago the Dublin of America? Having never been to Chicago and being thoroughly uninformed on Chicago culture and history, I'm going to declare Boston, without any hesitation, the Dublin of America. All right. What's your news of the day, Em? So my piece of news is incredibly important, and I think most people probably know about it already, but if not, it's everyone's favorite annual tradition, the week that you have all been waiting for, me especially. Fat Bear Week is back, Tim. Hooray. And not only that, we actually have a winner. Uh, spoiler alert ahead if you haven't been keeping up the competition has been real tough this year and otis is the fattest bear in alaska's katmai national park and preserve he's taken home the crown otis over a thousand pounds he weighs pre-hibernation weight very impressive it's heights that only the most gluttonous of us could ever aspire to reach and otis has done it 2021 fat bear week champion Otis. So my question is this. Did anybody know or care about Fat Bear Week before COVID? Because I don't ever remember hearing about it before last year. Tim, I'll tell you, I wrote the news articles on this for the last three years. And I mean, I would cover all kinds of ridiculous news from around the world. And the one article I always looked forward to writing every year was Fat Bear Week because the competition was stiff. The stakes are high. The bears are fat. They're leaving it all on the table. They're leaving it all on the field. And they're not leaving anything on the table. They're eating it they're all. They're not leaving anything on the table, Tim. And that's the point. And I love it. And I, I am in awe. And that, for anyone who doesn't know, if you've been living under a rock, 
Fat Bear Week is basically one week every year in Alaska's Katmai National Park where you can uh, anyone can go online and look at their bear cam and cast your vote for what you believe to be the heftiest bear that's gained the most pre-hibernation weight before the winter. Almost 800,000 votes were cast this year's contest. And Otis took home 51,000 votes, just beating out the 44,800 votes of the runner-up, Walker. So better luck next year, Walker. Eat some grapes, expand that stomach. You have a whole year to train, but for now, Otis is the king. So I have another question, and this one's a little bit more practical. So the fat bear king is just based on the votes. They're not actually weighing the bear. They weigh the bear afterwards, it seems. It's just based on appearance. So it's all about the glamour fat. You know, it's not about how what the scale says. So this is a marketing thing. So you could win Fat Bear Week just you by win fat being around week. the camera the most often, yep, probably. Yep. It's about owning your body, being comfortable in your skin, and just strutting your stuff. And that's what makes it so great. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the facts, Tim. It's about the, it's about the fat. It's all about the fat. All right. Well, congratulations to 480 Otis. That's a great, great prize. King Otis. King Otis. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EvanFlow underscore on Instagram, and he is Tim Winger one We'll see you guys next week.